live in one of the most religiously observant countries in the world. Many working class communities and communities of color are rooted in religious traditions. Yet for over 40 years, the religious right has focused much of its energy on seizing control of religious narratives and institutions. This is Heart of a Heartless World, a podcast produced by the Religious Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America, the largest socialist organization in the United States. Our goal is to amplify the voices of people of faith organizing for social, racial, environmental, and economic justice. You can follow Religious Socialism on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and visit our website at religioussocialism.org. If you like what you hear, you can support us on Patreon. Hello, my name is Nicole Ann Lobo of the Religion and Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America. We are the sponsor of this podcast, Heart of a Heartless World. I'm joined today by Matt Mazuski and Brendan Moore, two labor organizers and grad students who also happen to be dear friends of mine on the Catholic Church and contemporary labor history. Uh, So first, I'll introduce my guests. Matt is a PhD student in economics at Columbia University, concentrating on issues in labor economics. He's a lifelong New Jerseyan and Roman Catholic and an alum of Haverford College. Matt has worked at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and is currently a contributing writer and book critic at Commonweal Magazine a review of religion, culture, and politics, edited by lay Catholics. He is also the rapporteur of the Columbia Seminar on Catholicism, Culture, and Modernity. Since 2016, Matt has been an organizer with graduate workers of Columbia UAW Local 2110, the university's union of teaching and research assistants. Brendan is currently a PhD student in economics at Stanford University, concentrating on issues in labor and macroeconomics. Born and raised in Bangor, Maine, Brendan saw the devastating effects of the loss of unionized jobs at paper mills in the Penobscot River Valley across several decades. As a lifelong Catholic, he served in leadership roles in Columbia University's Catholic community. As a member of a student-run public policy group at Columbia, he spearheaded an effort for divestment from fossil fuel companies through the university's indirect holdings, such as hedge funds. Like Matt, he has also worked as a research assistant at the New York Fed. Friends and Matt and I were actually all members of Columbia's Catholic ministry together, and I'm hoping that we might get to talk a bit about the relationship between labor organizing and university Catholic ministries later in this episode. So welcome, Matt and Brendan. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having us. Okay, so first, I'm wondering, Matt and Brendan, if you can each tell me a bit about the way your faith affects your political convictions, or if there was an entry point from your Catholicism into your academic and organizing work. Matt, do you want to go first? Uh, sure. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think um, I think I've always sort of seen my political convictions as bound up with my religious beliefs. I mean, I think it's always seemed clear to me that. Christianity implies some sort of uh, egalitarian economic vision. Uh, And, you know, I think back to the fact that I had um, CCD teachers, uh, uh, you know, religious education teachers back in the day who I know are now Trump supporters. uh, And I just wonder how this happened. How is it that these people are the people that taught me about the faith? And yet uh, the conclusions I drew from what they were teaching me 
uh, are apparently so different from the conclusions that they themselves drew from what they were teaching. Um, so I, I can't really say that there was any particular moment where I had a realization that um, that you know my my faith was leading me to labor organizing or something like that. But it's just always been kind of a a sense I've had that uh, it doesn't really make any sense to think of uh, Christianity or Catholicism as as giving any sort of uh, comfort or reinforcement to uh, you know modern capitalism. Yes, for me, I mean, you know, also uh, as raised in you know the, the faith and just growing up, where uh, so much of like what you learn when you're younger is just more uh, with respect to the faith is more about like tradition and prayer and you know uh, this is I remember you know all the exhaustive thinking about what to give up for Lent and all these types of things. And then like once you start getting into high school adolescence, you start understanding some of the, the more intellectual underpinnings of, of Catholicism and, and, and the, the rich intellectual history that, that goes with it. And so for me, it was, I think around maybe high school where uh, discovering a, a lot of, in, you know, reading a lot of specific things in, in Matthew and Mark and uh, sort of seeing how that fortified, you know, what uh, limited political beliefs I may have had when I was, uh, younger in, in like your middle school, high school time. And so like from there, it was just, uh, you know, discovering even more in the faith. It's, it's, it's more than just, just the gospels. It's, it's, uh, so much writing in Catholic social teachings. It's, uh, mm -hmm. papal encyclicals. And those are the types of things that also just reinforce, uh, the, the values that I prize in a political context. I mean, in, in Catholicism, uh, when we talk about the, the dignity of work, we talk about the preferential option for the poor. And those are, you know, something that we, we value, in a social context uh, within the church, but it, I mean, it just so clearly maps on to uh, just political and organizing issues that come up in everyday lives, whether you're on a college campus or in, in the workplace. So it's always sort of uh, flowed naturally from that from that point. And it, it's been uh, nice in that, you know, it says, I think somewhere to Matt, you know, it, it ends up uh, giving you even more motivation to, to fight for what you believe in, because not only do you believe it in a, in a uh, just a, a totally secular standpoint, but there's this uh, religious uh, underpinning and, and understanding that there's uh, such a great, great tradition within the church of uh, a lot of these issues, particularly around labor organizing and unions, which I know we'll get to talk about. Yeah, definitely. Sorry, I just wanted to add um, one point about religious education. I mean, I remember uh, this one CCD class I was in, uh, you know, I don't know, this was elementary school or middle school or something, and uh, mm. we were talking about this passage that talks about how it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. And I remember I asked a question or I said something about like, well, isn't this just kind of a metaphor? You know, it's like uh, as long as the rich man is, is being nice to other people and sharing his wealth, you know, isn't that enough? And I remember the teacher saying something like, like, no, it's, it's saying like the rich cannot enter heaven. And, uh, you know, that's like, that's a really strong message and uh something that's that's hard, that was hard for people to accept at the time and that's hard for a lot of people to accept today and yet uh it's also a very radical message so uh, again it's it's been clear to me for a while that uh the message of the gospels is is uh quite a radical and egalitarian one yeah definitely i think that's so true like just how radical the gospel message is can tend to be watered down, I think, in certain um, echelons of the American Catholic Church today. But could you both talk a bit about what kind of organizing work you are currently involved in? 
sure. Yeah. So I think um, you you mentioned in that uh, great introduction before that for the past four years or so, I've been involved uh, as a volunteer organizer with Graduate Workers of Columbia, um, which is a union of uh, teaching and research assistants at uh, Columbia University. And I first got involved around the time that we were having an election to uh, legally form our union. And it's been quite a saga since then. So the, the union um, won its certification vote by a pretty resounding margin uh, in December of 2016. And since then, it's been a long struggle to get the university to recognize us, to get the university to bargain with us. Uh, and we still actually are in contract negotiations and have been for almost two years. So we still don't actually have a first contract. But, um, but yeah, that's something I've been involved in for... Um, for quite a while. And, uh, you know, it's been a frustrating experience, but it's also been uh, a really rewarding experience and um, it's been great to be a part of it. Do you think that with just a quick question on the recognition of Columbia's Grad Students Union, do you think that there's any hope in formal recognition given the new administration? Well, uh, that's a good question. I think that um, part of Columbia's strategy all along has been to basically just try to drag things out and outlast the union, hope that people lose interest, hope that the legal environment becomes more favorable to them. Um, and certainly uh, when the Trump administration came in and, and appointed a uh, number of officials to the National Labor Relations Board that were uh, pretty hostile to labor, um, Columbia was really banking on that to help them. Um, the board did propose at one point a regulation that would take away the rights of grad students at private universities to, to form unions. Um, which would clearly be to Columbia's benefit. That hasn't been mm -hmm. finalized yet. It's possible it still could be finalized uh, before the Republican members' terms are up. Um, but yet, yeah, definitely Biden coming into office um, should be a boost. And um, you know, I'm hopeful that, especially now that there's also a Democratic Senate, that if Biden can appoint new members um, that are more friendly to labor, uh, we may be able to, to make sure that the rights of grad workers are more protected, which would definitely be a boon not only to the union at Columbia, but also to, you know, the, the movement for grad worker unions across the board. Mm, yeah. Well, and what was just as another comment on that too, because I, you know, uh, um, at least part of my, I guess I got some of my, my started like organizing uh, after meeting Matt, after talking with him and Matt was of course a very active organizer as is still, still is with um, United Auto Workers, uh, which is the national union, uh, you know, that, that's affiliated with the local of grad students at Columbia, and and so when I was working with uh, with him and, and sort of uh, was helping out with with that effort, it was just so interesting to see that you had, in particularly in, in among university administration, where it's sort of it, it's it's an open it, it's no secret that they are you know hostile to uh, the new administration to to, to to Trump in terms of uh, you know there's uh, the president Lee Bollinger, who's the highest paid university president in the entire country, is a uh, a, freedom, or a First Amendment scholar and focuses a lot on freedom of speech and, and you know loves to comment on anything um, that, that he finds important that the Trump administration is doing. Oftentimes, just around norms and values and uh, certain things like that. But you know, the, the, the point's been made before that it's very easy to speak out against the incumbent administration when they're uh, when it, it costs you nothing, or if it explicitly you know costs you in, in terms of a lot of the things that the Trump administration did on immigration and. Uh, you know, foreign students coming to the U.S. You know, actively hurts Colombia, uh, both the community and the financial interests. But, but even in many cases, it was very easy to speak out against uh, and sort of take this posturing uh, against the Trump administration, despite the fact that so much of their financial strategy uh, in, in dealing with the union banks on them uh, not only being in power but you know maintaining power 
and uh, uh, for the National Labor Relations Board to not turn over, as Matt mentioned. Yeah, I think not, not to get too off topic here, uh, we could do a whole episode about just this, but uh, just the funniest uh, uh, instance of, of that mentality uh, that I can think of was um, right after Trump came into office, there was a large rally on the main Columbia campus against his um, refugee ban, the Muslim ban. And mm. um, uh, Columbia was live streaming the rally on their website. And at the end of the rally, uh, some of the organizers were thanking the different groups that had helped pull the rally together. Uh, and someone told me that as soon as they got to the point where they were thanking graduate workers of Columbia, uh, the, the stream cut out on the Columbia website. That's crazy. Wow. <laughs> um, what about you, Brendan? Have you been involved in any organizing recently at Stanford? Are there any um, grad union recognition efforts going on over there? Uh, unfortunately, the, uh, the environment on, on campus, uh, despite the fact that Stanford and Columbia are similarly situated in that the fight for graduate student unionization is mainly about private universities. So grad students at public universities have had the right to bargain since I believe the 1990s. Uh, at Stanford, there is uh, the, the movement is much more more nascent, uh, and you know, so I'm, I'm still sort of feeling that out. I just I arrived out here uh, in in the fall, uh, but but you know, so certainly I, I would you know I'd be looking forward to uh, joining something like that. But yeah, in, in terms of most of my experience, again, it's been uh, helping out, um, especially trying to rally uh, some support among the undergraduates uh, at, at Columbia when uh, that effort was going on. It was like the spring of my senior year was when they. Uh, sort of had their first work stoppage, which was uh, you know, basically the, the week of finals week, or uh, I believe that's what it was. I mean, Matt can remind me, but but it was uh, in because the Columbia had not even gotten the recognition, uh, you know, uh, or, or the, excuse me, the workers had not gotten recognition from Columbia that uh, you know, they were they were you know a, a legitimate collective bargaining unit, and uh, the contract negotiations had begun at that point. Uh, but but since then, I've also been doing some uh, uh, work with the legislative policy arm of the main AFL CIO. Oh, so, uh, yeah, so, so they, they, they've been very active right now. There's actually a, uh, a large organizing drive at Maine's largest hospital, uh, Maine Medical Center in, in Portland. And uh, so a lot of that, I've just been doing constituent outreach and trying to uh, basically uh, get, get uh, grassroots sports among voters in particular who are just, you know, who are following a lot of things going on in Augusta, the state capital. Uh, but, but, you know, there's important things going on all around the state. And so I've uh, been yeah. working with the, the main AFL-CIO in that context. Yeah, that's great. I, I actually, I think it might be important for us to note the recent passing of John Sweeney, who is longtime president of the AFL-CIO, I believe, um, and uh, a great a great Catholic as well, who's um, faith-informed, or faith-climate at least, informed a lot of his um, convictions. There was a great piece in the New Republic about this recently, I think. I don't know if you read it. But um, but anyways, I guess we can move on to um, a brief history of the American Catholic Church in labor justice issues. Matt, would you like to start us off with a particular anecdote or anything short on the Catholic Church in America and labor justice? Sure, yeah. Um, well, I guess one thing I would say is that, um, uh, yeah, the church, uh, both in the U.S. and uh, globally, has a long history of, of support for labor. Um, I mean, uh, the modern tradition of what usually gets referred to as Catholic social thought or Catholic social teaching um, goes back to 1891 um, with the uh, publication of, of an encyclical or uh, letter by Pope Leo XIII uh, that was entitled Rerum Novarum um, and which dealt with the conflict between capital and labor. So this sort of uh, kicked off the modern tradition of um, of 
papal reflection on issues of labor. Um, and what's interesting about the Catholic tradition on labor is that um, while the church has has been very pro-labor and has has seen unions as an essential uh, tool for the working class to protect its interests, um, it's also um, it's also portrayed its support for labor as uh, kind of a middle way, as like a, a third way between, on the one hand, uh, you know, extreme laissez-faire, and on the other hand, um, like state communism. Mm. And so I think it's it's interesting that the church has never really, never really rhetorically aligned itself with the left or never really presented um, its labor teaching as left. If anything, it's tried to present it as center. Um and so that's uh, that's something that I think that framing is very interesting, and I think potentially could actually be very useful for the labor movement today. But um, mm. but yeah, so so th- that's to say that you know the Catholic Church globally has had has had this long tradition. Um, in the U.S., I mean, there's also been a lot of support from the hierarchy um, for for labor rights. Uh, the Catholic priest uh, John A. Ryan, um, who actually later became associated with with the New Deal. He um, he was writing in the early 20th century about living wages and about unions as a, a a tool for getting living wages for you know the vast majority of workers. And this was at a time when there really was no federal labor law to speak of. So mm-hmm. if you look at his um, one of his most famous works, uh, which is called A Living Wage, he actually talks about how he thinks um, one of the best uses of uh, of charitable donations by the wealthy would be for them to fund union organizing drives because it would essentially um, create the institutions that would allow um, working people to to guarantee a livelihood for themselves. Wow, that's uh, that's all really great. And I guess um, I guess just to pick up on something that you you mentioned about um, Rara Novarum, how was Rara Novarum received in America? Is it still cited quite widely among? American bishops has the sort of sentiment on Rara Novarum changed significantly, and um, also if there are any particular key points in Rara Novarum that you think are very pertinent, um, I would love to hear them, both Matt and Brendan. Sure, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, certainly, again, this tradition of support for labor um, uh, in the American church continues down to today. I mean, um, you know, the the bishops get a lot of attention for. Uh, their interventions in politics on what we might think of as culture war issues. Um, but I think there's less attention paid to the fact that they have also um, done a lot of work to to promote the rights of labor. And um, I'm thinking back to a few years ago, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops um, uh, filed an amicus brief uh, in the Janus case, uh, which was a Supreme Court case that uh, essentially extended right to work to the public sector. Um, and their amicus brief was defending the rights of public sector workers to to form unions, um, and that's not a that's not a recent development. Um, I mean, opposition to right to work among the bishops actually goes goes pretty far back. the The U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, uh, the forerunner to that organization, um, opposed the Taft Hartley Act in 1947, which was a, a set of amendments to the National Labor Relations Act um, that was meant in in many ways to weaken the original law. And um, one of the provisions of that law was to allow states to pass right-to-work laws. And the bishops opposed the law um, in large part because of that provision. Um, You can still see today there are bishops that speak out against right-to-work. Bishop John Stowe, who's the bishop of Lexington, Kentucky, um, he was speaking out publicly against um, passage of right-to-work in Kentucky a few years ago. 
So um, yeah, so there's a long, long tradition of, of that. Um, I guess you, you were asking about Rerum Navarum specifically. Yeah, I think what's interesting about Rerum Navarum is that it, um, it kind of presupposes this conflict between capital and labor and then talks about how, uh, you know, the by embracing the teaching of the church and by embracing, um, you know, working men's associations like unions, um, you know, there can be some kind of balance sought between capital and labor and, and the classes can kind of like work harmoniously together for the good of society. So actually there are a lot of people on the left, including uh, Catholics on the left who um, are really skeptical of Rerum Navarum, who really are not, um, are somewhat critical of its vision because it really kind of presupposes and assumes that this conflict between capital and labor is going to continue and doesn't really talk a lot about how it could potentially be overcome, how there could be, um, you know, democratic ownership of capital or, or so on or so forth, which is not to say that those things are not taken up in later encyclicals or, or um, you know, more recent popes have dealt with the issue of like worker ownership um, and, um, and co-determination and things of that sort. But, um, but yeah, like Rerum Navarum, I think is presented by some people as sort of like a leftist tract. Um, and I think a lot of leftists would take issue with that. Yeah, and I would I would just add on to that as well. You know, Matt's characterization of how it, it sort of seems to sort of take this third way in the way that it frames the issue. Uh, it, and I think that certainly is the case. <laughs> Matt actually had a, a very good recent piece in Bias Magazine uh, framing uh, the most recent papal encyclical from Pope Francis uh, in these very terms. It was a, a good good piece. But uh, in with respect to uh, Leo the Thirteenth, who wrote Rerum uh, Novarum, so I think the thing to remember about encyclicals is that they, they try to apply enduring principles of the Church in the particular circumstances of the time. So I mean, in, in Rerum Novarum, in particular, like when you like look at specific examples of uh, you know laying out you know dignity of the human person and, and fair wages, it talks a lot about you know uh, the, uh, workers in the mines because that was a very common. Uh, industrial context back then. It talks a lot about child labor, which you know, you know is something that a hundred years later. Uh, so John Paul II, on the one hundred year anniversary of Rerum Novarum, wrote it's in Tetenus Annus, which is basically like on the hundredth year, and so it's reflecting once again on these same issues. And even a hundred years later, as the global context uh, historically has changed radically, it's the same exact framing. Where, uh, in, in fact, I think the context is even more clear. And I would say that the condemnations of things like uh, condemnations of arguments against private property, so arguing very firmly in favor of private property, arguing against uh, you know some sort of like a collectivism, is it's even more clear in John Paul's writing in 1991, where the context again was just in, in 1989 it just happened, and so so you, you had uh, just the, the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, the, the fall of the Berlin Wall, and so they're they're applying. Print, you know, the enduring principles uh, to, to that time. And, and in fact, the way that that was received in America, so I, I can't tell you as much about, you know, how uh, it was uh, Pope Leo XIII's piece was received, but John Paul II's piece, so there was this cleric uh, in the United States by the name of Richard John Newhouse, who he was an editor at a conservative Catholic magazine called First Things, and he wrote an op-ed in 1991 uh, before the encyclical of John Paul II even came out. He actually he broke the encyclical's embargo, which is a serious ethical breach, uh, to write about how John Paul II had endorsed the market economy-based neoliberal order, basically. This is, you know, any, you know, he actually didn't even, so, so there was the framing of there's this sort of third way between communism and 
unregulated capitalism. And, and, you know, because that framing, you're only adjusting one frame over, not two, right? So, so, so he, he sort of got out in front of the narrative in America and then and wrote this, this uh, op-ed in the Wall Street Journal uh, talking about how this is a, a, a real seismic shift in the way that the, the church thinks about uh, economic issues. And, and so that was, uh, that I think informed a lot of the thinking maybe in the American church in the, in the 1990s where there were a number of people in the American church sort of pushing that narrative. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, Brendan brought up John Paul II. I think John Paul II really uh, illustrates this point about how the church's support for labor has has had an anti-communist flavor. I mean, um, if you think about John Paul II is very well known for being associated with the Solidarity Movement in Poland, which was um, a trade union movement, but that was opposed to the, the communist government in Poland at the time. Um, and going back even further, um, Pope Pius XII in the 1950s uh, declared May 1st to be the Feast of St. Joseph the Worker, uh, St. Joseph um, being the uh, you know, adoptive father of Jesus. And um, uh, the reason he did that was essentially because he was trying to reclaim May Day um, uh, from the communists and, uh, you know, express the church's support for labor while also putting like a religious gloss on it. So you mentioned, you mentioned Rerum Novarum. Would you say that there are any other key encyclicals that sort of chart the evolution of the Catholic church um, in its approach to labor issues? I know you mentioned it tends to have an anti-communist flavor and, um, the way that that has developed sort of, I guess, in line with international politics and with um, the Cold War. Um, but I wonder whether any key encyclicals um, you think would be worth mentioning um, have especially shaped the directions or the sort of attitude of the USCCB in America and whether the USCCB tends to take um, a more consistent line or whether it really is more up to individual bishops in the way they respond to these issues. So there's a few different questions there, but sort of latch on to anything that, that sparks your interest. Oh, I see. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, to the question about encyclicals, like essentially every pope since Leo XIII has written at least one encyclical that would be categorized as being part of the the Catholic social, the tradition of Catholic social thought. Um, I guess the one that most explicitly deals with the question of labor would be um, Labarum Exercens, which was by, again, John Paul II, um, written in the early 1980s. Um, and, uh, um, but, but that would just be one. I mean, um, you know, Pope Francis himself has taken up some of these issues in um, Laudato Si, which was his uh, 2015 encyclical on climate change, but which, which also um, discussed a great deal about the global economy. Um, and most recently in his um, encyclical from last year, Fratelli Tutti, which also talks about um, global economics and politics. Um, and, and is in fact notable for being um, one of the first, actually the first encyclical to come out and explicitly criticize neoliberalism. So, you know, often popes will use language like um, the global economic system or the prevailing economic system. And Francis himself has, has talked about the economy that kills, um, but has usually avoided direct criticism of, of capitalism or neoliberalism. And so it was, it was, somewhat striking to see him uh, explicitly mention and criticize neoliberalism in his latest, in his latest writing. But, um, but yeah, this is something that the, the popes have dealt with um, pretty consistently since, uh, you know, over the last 125 years or so. 
Um, and, and Brendan, could you say a bit more about perhaps, um, despite the fact that popes, you know, tend to address these issues quite head on, um, in the American context, how directly does the USCCB reflect the sort of, um, the, the encyclicals that are being published by various popes and um, the church in Rome's attitude towards labor justice? Yeah, well, it's interesting how it has been much written about the internal politics of the Vatican during uh, Francis's papacy, and including, you know, that's sort of a, a 2018, um, you know, you, different words for it, but in, in 2018, it's sort of a, a skirmish or a, a amongst, uh, you could just say, uh, uh, bishops and cardinals and, and clerics, uh, where there's a lot of hostility uh, uh, internally and politically among Francis. And I remember one quote that came out in that uh, in the reporting of that 2018 uh, uh, scuffle was basically uh, Francis said something to the effect of where he was asked a question about uh, a certain USCCB statement, and uh, his response was something on the on the order of uh, paraphrasing of, "Well, if the Americans are mad at me, then that means I'm doing my job well." And, and so I, I think that that's, it's illustrative of, again, it's not that, you know, they are, like, with respect to labor issues, that the American bishops are, are you know, taking the side of the, of the bosses and, you know, endorsing Scott Walker-like uh, policies in, uh, you know, at the, the state government level. But it, it's that the, the way that, uh, even, we even saw this with the inauguration of uh, President Biden, where well, it was on the, the day of his inauguration, there was a, a letter released by the USCCB that, that, that basically... Uh, was sort of you know cautioning. I, I actually I, I almost I don't want to mischaracterize it, Matt. How would you how would you characterize the the letter that, that came out on Biden's inauguration? Uh, yeah, I mean it. Um, that I was going to bring that up if you didn't actually because um, yeah, it, it started. This is a letter signed by the uh, by the president of the uh, Conference of Catholic Bishops, and uh, it it you know congratulates Biden on becoming the second Catholic president and talks about how uh, it's you know, encouraging now that we have a president that shares our faith. And then, um, but then very quickly gets into, um, uh, you know, the subject of abortion and how um, this is a area where Biden has clashed with the church. And, you know, we hope that he reconsiders his, his views going forward. Um, And uh, it was, it was just, um, it was a striking thing to see in a, in a note that kind of seemed like it should be a sort of perfunctory, Congratulatory message to the new president. Um, uh, not not to say that it's not an important issue, but um, it, you know there is definitely a, a foregrounding of this one issue to the exclusion of of other issues. Mm. And um, uh, so yeah, so I think that I would agree, I would agree with Brendan. It's not that it's, again, it's not that the bishops are are supporting right to work. Or the, I mean, they're not. They're they're filing court briefs opposing right to work. And um, so it's it's not a matter of having the wrong policies. It's, it's more a matter of what they choose to emphasize and, and what they choose to highlight as the most important. Um, now I should also note that there was controversy, uh, within the bishops conference following the release of that letter. Um, so, uh, Cardinal Supich, who is the, um, Archbishop of Chicago, he actually came out, uh, and was critical of the process of, of drafting and, uh, and assembling that letter. And, um, he later actually met with Pope Francis uh, ostensibly about a separate issue, but um, that meeting was sort of portrayed in the in the media as a kind of a rebuke of the of the president of the USCCB and his approach to Biden. That's great. Yeah, I I guess that kind of begins to answer some of the questions that that I have sort of following up off of that, which is 
you know, to what extent would you say individual bishops um, and even priests um, in America are willing to dissent from the central line of the USCCB? Um, Matt, I know you mentioned earlier Bishop um, John Stowe, and I think of my own bishop, Robert McElroy in San Diego, who tend to have more, um, I guess, more progressive than maybe the mainstream um, USCCB tends to be on issues of social justice. But I wonder whether, um, yeah, whether there are any other key figures, you would say, in the American Catholic Church who um, maybe tend to dissent from the central line of the USCCB. Yeah, well, again, I I don't know that it's really a matter of dissent, because I don't think that any, I don't think that any bishop would really come out and um, explicitly challenge uh, church teaching or, or, uh, I mean, I, I think Brendan's point is taken that some of the criticism of Francis has been um, especially open um, and especially direct. But um, I think it's usually more a matter of emphasis. Like, um, I don't think that you're really going to see bishops arguing about like whether labor rights are something that the church should be uh, calling to be protected. Um, I think there is agreement on paper about the fact that uh Yes, the the rights of labor and the dignity of labor are uh, important issues, but it's more a matter of what gets emphasized in practice. And so, a lot of a lot of bishops will certainly take the view that uh, issues about uh, around abortion or um, uh, same sex marriage or euthanasia that these are these are somehow preeminent issues that um, really need to be prioritized and emphasized. And you know, we can have disagreements about what's the best way to guarantee a living wage. And we can have disagreements about what's the best way to, to defend the rights of labor. But these are things that we really can't have disagreements about. And so, you know, when Catholics go to vote or when they go to be involved in politics in other ways, um, these are really the things that should be, that should be guiding them, um, you know, almost to the exclusion of everything else. And so I think where you'll see disagreement is like with bishops pushing back on that and saying um, that there really needs to be a more holistic approach. Um, I remember, uh, he's not actually my bishop, but the uh, Cardinal Archbishop of Newark, um, uh, Cardinal Tobin, who was selected by Pope Francis several years ago. I went to see him talk about three years ago, and someone asked him a question about voting, and he made this point that, you know, actually neither party, uh, neither major party really fully embodies the teaching of the church. And so one response to that would be for Catholics to just pull back and say, uh, I'm not going to be involved in politics because I don't want to get my hands dirty. I don't want to be involved in with either of these groups. Uh, but another response to that is to say uh, Catholics have to be involved in politics because they have to try to work to make things better. Um, and so that that line, though, is certainly a less confrontational, um, more kind of um, you know positive line mm-hmm. than some bishops will take, which is to say, you know, Biden is supporting uh, objective evil. And, you know, Catholics need to resist that. Yeah, that's that's such a good way of, of putting it, right? I really like, I really appreciate that Cardinal Tobin said that. I'd be interested in listening um, to a recording of that talk, actually. But I think... Yeah, I don't know if there was, unfortunately, but um, but it was, it was, yeah, it was good conversation. <laughs> yeah, sounds, sounds great. You know, actually, all this talk about, like, the bishops is getting me to, to think about whether... We might talk a little bit about Catholic labor organizing outside the church hierarchy, and if there are any significant lay-led organizations or initiatives um, mobilizing around labor justice. 
Uh, yeah, so there's uh, one organization that I, I wanted to highlight, which is called the Catholic Labor Network. Mm-hmm. Um, their website is catholiclabor.org. And they're an organization that devotes themselves to tracking the labor situation at different Catholic institutions. Um, so they maintain a list of Catholic institutions that have collective bargaining relationships, and they maintain, um, uh, they keep a running uh, tab on uh, Catholic institutions that are experiencing labor disputes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and really what they're trying to encourage is um, Catholics to be involved in the labor movement, but also for the church to live up to its own, um, to its own teaching on the rights of labor in, its, in dealing with its own workers. Um, so I would definitely recommend people check that out to, to get a sense of, you know, what the lay of the land looks like now with like some of the, some of the big um, labor disputes in, in the Catholic world. Mm, that's great. And, and within the context of universities too, I think it's it's an interesting thing to see the evolution of, particularly uh, some of the the kind of large, uh, prominent uh, Catholic institutions of higher education in America, and, and sort of how they've uh, dealt with this. I mean, so you know, there's I know, like for example, at Boston College, you know, the Jesuit institution, there's a you know, labor dispute, you know, not wanting to recognize uh, their graduate student union. It's interesting, just the evolution, I, you know, the, uh, sort of tracking the history. People like will, will, will trace this, uh, when did Catholic institutions such as, you know, uh, your Notre Dame's, your Boston Colleges, your, your Georgetown's, which are recognized uh, as national you know, universities and they're, they're, you know, they are understood, you know, their identity is Catholic, but it's, you know, that they are uh, considered uh, among the top uh, universities with respect to academic performance and certainly athletics and you know some people trace it back to uh, when when Boston College sort of went from being a, a regional uh, uh, private school that was you know was once called the Catholic Harvard because Catholics couldn't go to Harvard so you you'd go to Boston College instead when they sort of went from being the regional Catholic school to a national university back when uh, uh, a football player named Doug Flutie was, was the quarterback in the 1980s and yeah, this very famous uh, play that they, they called the Hail Mary because they, they ended up beating the University of Miami uh, on a last-second touchdown where he threw the, the ball downfield and that, that garnered national attention. And then, like the the, the very next year, the, the composition of the uh, student body and uh, the, the amount of money that was coming into the athletics department really changed. And all of a sudden, it starts looking like some of your your big national universities that you know, we think about today that are you know have, have high academic standards, but also have um, you, you know their, their athletics department is a big part of the school identity. And then that just starts changing. And so then the universities and the um, and, and the uh, clergy who are running the universities recognize, oh well, well, we're sort of a national university now. We had to sort of compete with these guys and so uh, they, they always have this internal struggle about how to balance uh, you know what they see as a, the important Catholic uh, values that are important to the school's identity while also wanting to compete with um, just top American uh, secular institutions of private or public and you know that, that, that comes up in, in like the curriculum and how much you know what do we do with the uh, undergraduate curriculum and how much religious education do we require um, you know, a whole bunch of issues around uh, student life, but then it also ends up, you know, as we, we see itself, it manifests itself in how they deal with uh, uh, organized labor on the campus, which should be a, a cut and dry uh, issue in terms of what the Catholic social teaching says. Just to, to pick up on Brendan's point about the labor situation at Catholic universities, um, and to connect this also to our earlier discussion about grad worker organizing, um, this I think has been a, a fascinating and also disappointing uh, uh, situation, um, a lot of 
Catholic universities have seen uh, attempts by grad workers to organize and have actually tried to undermine those efforts by claiming religious exemption from federal labor, labor law. So um, Boston College, Loyola Chicago um, have tried to, you know, re have refused to recognize their, their grad worker unions um, and have said things like, you know, we don't think that unions are, are necessary for uh, grad workers' interests to be protected, which of course is the same line that, that secular institutions like Columbia will use and also, right. you know, is, is in conflict with Catholic teaching on the rights of workers to, to, to bargain collectively. Um, so actually at Boston College, I, I believe that their grad worker union still has not been recognized. And um, at one point, a couple of years ago, the union actually pulled its petition um, to be legally recognized because they were afraid that the, the Trump uh, National Labor Relations Board was going to use their case as a vehicle um, to expand the religious exemption uh, from federal labor law. So uh, during the Obama administration, there was an NLRB decision um, called Pacific Lutheran, which said that, uh, th which basically created a ministerial exception. So it said that um, clergy or actual religious workers um, are not um, governed by federal labor law. So that you could think of, you know, priests teaching at Catholic universities or sisters teaching at Catholic universities. Um, <clears throat> but the Trump NLRB, um, the BC union was afraid that the Trump NLRB was going to go further. And in fact, they eventually did go further because last year um, in this more recent decision called Bethany College, um, the NLRB basically declared that it has no jurisdiction at all over religious institutions, even over secular workers. So, um, you know, secular teachers at religious colleges now have no federally protected right to unionize. Mm. Um, and so, uh, unfortunately, some religious schools have, you know, have eagerly welcomed this decision. Uh, there was a, a Quaker school in Brooklyn um, where some of my friends went to a labor protest because um, following this decision, the, the administration of the school actually pulled recognition or threatened to pull recognition for their teachers union um, until there was a, a, a strike and a, a large enough public backlash that they ultimately backed down from that. But um, yeah, it really is unfortunate to see this because, uh, you know, Catholic universities are trying to claim exemption from labor law because of their religious prerogatives when their own religion um, really is calling for uh, protection of the rights of labor. So it's it's kind of a, a sad situation. Yeah. Have there been any efforts, you know, by the USCCB or otherwise to uh, to address this and to call out Catholic universities? Uh, unfortunately, not that I'm really aware of. I mean, there have been efforts to, uh, you know, go to the heads of the, by the unions to go to the heads of these colleges and to try to appeal to the Catholic tradition. I mean, the president of Boston College, I believe, is a Jesuit. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, but again, really, the response has either been uh, no response or to say, you know, we don't think a union is we don't think a union is a necessary uh, tool for these workers to have their interests protected, which, you know, that's like the standard line anywhere. Right. Yeah, thanks both Matt and Brendan for bringing that up because that's that's really uh, that's so jarring that there's this contradiction that exists that isn't really being um, being called out. But on another front that I think is kind of fascinating with um, the way the church is approaching labor issues is on the front of immigration because if we understand immigration to very largely also be a labor issue, um, I wonder whether certain bishops in the Catholic Church or organizations that are um, 
Catholic are addressing um, immigrant justice <laughs> as, as a form of labor justice. Uh, I think sort of most directly of the Bishop of Brownsville, uh, Bishop Daniel Flores. But um, I wonder whether either of you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I, I, I think about, uh, this, this is not a direct answer, but I, I, can, I can comment on, on the issue, because uh, what you've seen more broadly, I, I guess abstracting from the Catholic Church, is in particular, you know, so so charting the last uh, 80 years of American labor history, it was, you know, for a long time, you know, the AFL-CIO and most of its constituent members, individual unions uh, were opposed to immigration, sort of on, on the idea that um, you increase the labor supply, that's going to drive down the price of labor, it's going to drive down down wages. And, you know, there's a lot of factors bound up in that. I mean, you know, a lot of that's the, was, it sort of dovetailed with the, you know, the, the cultural uh, sentiments at the time and the composition of the members of, of the unions, you know. So, so but, but what we've seen, I, I don't know exactly when, when the chart is, but maybe it's in the, in the last uh, you know 10, 20 years in particular, where the attitudes of unions, even as you know, it's not that they've like tracked with the Democratic Party. Yeah, the Democratic Party used to be you know much more uh, anti-immigrant as well, uh, but it's that I think a combination of a recognition that uh, there's evolving um, empirical understanding within the field of economics, as uh, Matt can also tell you, that you know the effect of immigration on wages is not nearly what some people uh, like to hypothesize that it is. You know, the, 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 it's not clear that uh, increasing immigration in a, a certain local labor market drives down the prevailing wages. But even uh, independent of that, it's that, um, uh, you know, not only is America diversifying, but the membership of individual unions uh, is diversifying, especially in, in the service sector. And so now I th you think you'd be hard-pressed to find, I mean, I, I'm sure that there are certain uh, local construction unions, which which may have different views, but you know, at like the national level, you know, I, I don't know, I can't think of many uh, like national union presidents who would uh, be out there espousing the same types of lines on immigration that they were, you know, twenty years ago. Uh, and I think a big part of that's just because the the memberships changed, which is an encouraging thing. Uh, I imagine that the Catholic Church, with respect to that, again, it's not that they're like a a co-equal partner in labor that they try and coordinate political messaging or anything like that. It's, you know, far from it. Um, you know, my, my perception of it is that I would imagine that uh, the Catholic Church has had a pretty consistent view on uh, the, 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 the right to migrate and, and uh, you know, respecting the, the human dignity of the person of the immigrant. And so they, in this sense, they, they've actually sort of outflanked many of the American labor unions, is at least my, my sense of the, the situation. Uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to mention that... Um... Uh, I believe the uh, a bishop from Washington D.C., uh, not not the Archbishop of Washington D.C., one of the auxiliary bishops who is the uh, chair of a USCCB committee on migration, actually came out um, within the past few days and praised the Biden administration for some of its actions on immigration, um, mm. explicitly saying that um, this is this represents a more humane approach than that of the previous administration, um, which is fairly direct criticism of, of Trump for, for a Catholic bishop. But, um, but then, I mean, there are other um, like grassroots Catholic um, uh, immigrant rights groups that have been skeptical of Biden and, um, and critical of the fact that, you know, it doesn't seem like this administration really has the appetite to slow the rate of deportations or um, to really fundamentally change the system. So, um, so yeah, there's there's some heterogeneity of views in the Catholic community, but um, but yeah, it does seem like on 
the uh, on the immigration question, the USCCB is is like fairly um, open to Biden's approach. That's all really exciting. And I guess looking forward, do you envision any contemporary trends for the future of the American Catholic Church on um, labor issues? Um, that's a good question. I um, I think it's uh, it's hard to say. I mean, I guess one demographic trend in uh, in the U.S. church is that uh, it's becoming more racially diverse. So um, I think, you know, traditionally uh, in the 20th century, people thought of the Catholic church as a church of, uh, of Irish and Italians. And, um, but I think now the church is becoming a lot more Hispanic. So um, certainly insofar as, insofar as there are racial inequalities in wealth and in, um, uh, you know, in, economic situation, um, I think that, you know, as the church um, diversifies racially, it, it will, these issues will probably become even more prominent. Definitely. Yeah, I, 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 um, I, I, perhaps I guess uh, a less sanguine view of it is, it, you know, so you go back like 60 years when, you know, John F. Kennedy was elected the first Catholic president. I mean, there was not a... Uh, there, there was, it was commonly understood, you know, what it meant to be an American Catholic, uh, you know, in part because, you know, of what uh, the issue that, that Matt talked about. And now you're in a situation where the, the church is much more bifurcated. And we, we talked about a lot of these issues um, earlier in this, in this conversation. And what, you know, and again, it's not that there's a necessarily fundamental disagreement. There might be more disagreement among the lay Catholics uh, compared to uh, the bishops. Again, it's, it's certainly the case that the bishops are not advocating the wrong policies. Yeah, uh, you do wonder that lay Catholics, uh, depending again on what issues that they they emphasize, um, right. end up sort of going along with uh, the, the the prevailing sentiments of um, not necessarily not they're always attuned to uh, certain more conservative Catholic bishops, but that you know you're listening more to um, political leaders that are uh, aligned with uh, those emphasizing those values, right? And so so then all of a sudden you can sort of get get you know carried in one direction. Um, and, and, you know, you, you, you know, your de-emphasis of certain values in Catholic social teaching uh, can turn to indifference, can turn to hostility, uh, depending on w- what uh, side of the bifurcation of the American Catholic Church you're in. And so that, that's what, it's an interesting time for, for Joe Biden as the second Catholic president to sort of come in uh, in the context of this uh, sort of bifurcated church. And so I, I don't know uh, how, I, I, I think that, it would, it's going to take a more robust labor movement uh, uh, across, um, you know, across industries, across uh, regions, across you know, demographics, and across party lines for some sort of a united Catholic uh, front for uh, pushing organized labor. Uh, is I think I think unfortunately it might have to sort of come from uh, the secular institutions, and, and then uh, all of a sudden you sort of people's understanding of you know what it means for the dignity and rights of workers to be reactivated as Catholics. I, I, I don't know that, uh, just given the, the leadership of the USCCB and just the prevailing political context, I don't know that there could be a, an American Catholic-led um, labor movement that sort of reactivates everyone's um, uh, you know, purpose uh, for, for, for these issues, unfortunately. Well, well yeah, cer- certainly there's, uh, you know, um you could talk about lay movements and you could talk about the, the actions of the bishops and the hierarchy. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think I agree with Brendan that um, 
it's probably more likely that we would see that we would start to see um, a bigger Catholic lay movement for labor rights than that we would see some sort of movement necessarily led by the bishops. I mean, I think it's hard to game out politically where the bishops conference will be headed in the future. Like if you look at some of the appointments of, of Francis, um, you know, these have been people like some of the bishops we've discussed on this, um, on this episode, like Stowe and um, McElroy and Supich and Tobin. Um, and these are bishops that seem to have, um, as I was explaining earlier, like this kind of, I don't know that I would necessarily call it a more progressive approach um, because it's, it's an approach that is orthodox and in keeping with the teaching of the church, but um, like a more holistic approach to, to politics and to um, engagement with society. But, um, but then at the same time, you know, a lot of, as I think all of us know from our personal experience, it also seems like a lot of younger priests that are, that are coming into ministry now um, are increasingly conservative. And, um, and so it's, it's, I don't think that these kind of generational arguments are necessarily um, the right way to look at things. I don't think it's the case that like, just given enough time, uh, Francis's approach or the approach of, of some of the Francis bishops will become the dominant approach in the United States. I think if anything, it's also equally likely that things could turn in the other direction. There could be more of a backlash to Francis um, as, as Brendan was discussing discussing earlier. So, you know, a lot depends on like the next papacy, who is the Pope after Francis and, and what sort of bishops does he appoint to the American hierarchy? Um, but a lot of it also depends on like, who are the priests that are coming into the pipeline now that are going to be the bishops, you know, 20 or 30 years from now. Um, so it's, you know, nobody really has any idea how any of that is going to play out. Great. Well, thank you both so much. This has been such an illuminating and a wide-ranging discussion and has left me with a lot to think about. But um, yeah, I really appreciate your time. And um, I know our listeners will as well. So thank you. Well, thank you, Nicole. And I just wanted to conclude with um, one of my favorite anecdotes about the Catholic Church and labor, which I think um, is, is amusing, but also uh, encouraging. Um, and I can't remember where I originally read this, but um, I believe that Vatican City is the country uh, that has the highest union density of any nation in the world. Uh, and that's because of the fact that it's so small and all of its employees belong to this union that's called the Association of Vatican Lay Workers, which was uh, formally recognized by the Vatican in the 1990s. So if anybody says to you, like, you know, uh, is the Catholic Church pro-labor, you say, like, well, uh, the Vatican has more union workers than uh, per capita than anywhere else on Earth. <laughs> exactly. Uh. <laughs> Thank you for that, Matt. <laughs> Uh, I think that's a good place to leave it. So <laughs> thanks. And um, thank you to the listeners for tuning in. And thank you, Matt and Brendan, for being with us today. Excellent to be here. Thanks so much. Take care. This has been an episode of Heart of a Heartless World, a podcast produced by the Religious Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America. This episode was produced by Jeremy McMahon with intro music by Party Dark. You can follow Religious Socialism on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and visit our website at religioussocialism.org. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting us on Patreon.